Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute and I'm glad to see all of you here. Um, We're going to have a very interesting discussion today. We're going to talk about the days when Republicans used to believe in limited government. You may remember those days when Republicans used to say things like, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. Or when Republicans promised to go to Washington and return power to the states and the people. But now we get trillion-dollar expansions of Medicare and federal takeovers of local schools and unconstitutional restrictions on everything from political speech to habeas corpus and a federal government spending money faster than Lyndon Johnson did. Not that Democrats are much better. I've been amused lately to see various references to uh, Democrats as fiscal conservatives. And every time I see a journalist calling a Democrat a fiscal conservative, I go and check it out. That's what journalists are supposed to do. And every one of these fiscally conservative Democrats votes for every spending bill that comes to the floor of Congress and introduces more spending than Congress ever gets to vote on. I suppose it may be true that they believe in tax and spend rather than borrow and spend, and by some people's standards, that makes them fiscally conservative, but it hardly makes them friends of the taxpayers. But we're not going to talk about Democrats today. We're going to talk about Republicans and what's happened to the Republican Party, or as Stephen Slavinsky puts it in the title of his book, Buck Wild, How Republicans Broke the Bank and Became the Party of Big Government. Pick one up out front or go to any bookstore or to www.cato.org and you can get a copy of the book. The author of this book, Stephen Slavinsky, is Director of Budget Studies at the Cato Institute. We're very proud that some years ago in his youth, he was a fiscal policy analyst here. He went out to become a senior economist at the Tax Foundation and Director of Tax and Budget Studies for the Goldwater Institute out in Arizona. Now he's come back here as Director of Budget Studies. He's probably, until now, been best known for his work with Stephen Moore on the Fiscal Policy Report Card on America's Governors, and also for a paper uh, published last year called The Grand Old Spending Party, How Republicans Became Big Spenders. That paper is updated in the new book with additional information. And I will go ahead and introduce our commenter, although it could certainly be said that Robert Novak needs no introduction, either in Washington or on television. He's been covering Congress for almost 50 years. Since 1966, the Chicago Sun-Times has circulated his column, first with Roland Evans and now by himself, um, currently carried by over 300 publications. Most syndicated columnists comment on the news, but the Novak uh, column breaks news with hard reporting. He actually goes out and finds information, finds news, and reports it in the column. He also produces a twice-monthly newsletter, the Evans-Novak Political Report, which I was amazed to discover recently you can get for free. So if you're not getting the Evans-Novak Political Report and you're interested in politics, you ought to go look it up on the web. Uh, Bob has been writing books longer than Stephen Slavinsky has been alive. Um, His first book uh, with, uh, with Roland Evans was Agony of the GOP, 1964. He went on to write books about Lyndon Johnson and Nixon and the Reagan Revolution. And in November 1999, he wrote a book called Completing the Revolution, A Vision for Victory in 2000. And one of the things we'll be talking about today is whether 
the Republican victory in 2000 has completed any sort of revolution. Bob is, of course, often seen on television, and he's also the winner of the National Press Club's uh, Award for Lifetime Achievement in Journalism. At this point, please welcome the author of Buck Wild, How Republicans Broke the Bank and Became the Party of Big Government, Stephen Slavinsky. Thank you for the introduction, David. also thank all of you for coming and for our C-SPAN audience as well. And I also want to thank Robert Novak for agreeing to speak today, too. A friend of mine named Dave used to be a high school substitute teacher in Phoenix, Arizona. It's back in 1997. He was overseeing a high school civics class. It was a public high school, and so he wanted to make sure the kids were reading something useful. And so he decided to assign a few chapters from Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. And then he wanted to ask them after they've read this what their impressions and thoughts were. Before the end of class, the girl came up to my friend Dave, and after she'd read the chapters, said to him, you know, this Goldwater guy doesn't seem to really like Republicans very much. <laughs> Bear in mind, this was 1997, and this girl uh, was in high school, and the only Republican president, or at least one of the strongest Republican presidents in her mind, of course, was Ronald Reagan, at a time, of course, when the idea of small government, limited government, was the linchpin of conservative Republican philosophy. And because it was 1997, this was a few years after the Gingrich Republican Revolution, so it's understandable that she thought if you're a self-proclaimed conservative, you're also a Republican, and if you vice versa, why would you start beating up on other Republicans, and why would you try to claim that they were part of the problem? Or let's think of it another way. Imagine 1980, a Republican activist who's uh, holding signs for Reagan on a street corner, someone who might have read Conscious of a Conservative when they were in, in high school themselves. And imagine them being transported to today seeing the spectacle of Republican president and a GOP Congress presiding over a massive expansion of the welfare state in the form of Medicare drug benefits, or even hearing a president give interviews to reporters in which he suggests the old GOP message of cutting government spending is a sour, grumpy, and outmoded form of conservatism. It might make our time traveler from the 1980s wonder why George W. Bush doesn't like Republicans very much either. So I think the simple answer, of course, to all of this is that Republicans simply just don't act like the party of Reagan and Goldwater anymore. My book is an attempt to explain how that happened, how the GOP became, as I say, a party of big government. I think the problem is much larger than George W. Bush, by the way. There has been a change in the answer of the Republican Party leaders as a whole to the question of what the role of government should be in a free society. Their record on the federal budget is simply a window into, I think, this overall shift in philosophy. Now seems the biggest impediments to change are no longer Democrats in Congress, it's Republicans in Congress and in the White House. Gone are the days of victories, moral or otherwise, over big government. Los Angeles Times reporter put it a few years ago, no longer are Republicans arguing with Democrats about whether government should be big or small. Instead, they are at odds over what kind of big government the U.S. should have. Former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich lamented to the New York Times that Republicans had lost their way. Supporters of small government did cheer in 1996 when President Clinton declared in the State of the Union address that the era of big government is over. Unfortunately, today it's been replaced by something far worse, the era of supersized government, and for that, we have Republicans to thank. It's pretty obvious the GOP has an image problem. 
In fact, if you look at polling results, and in particular polls that were uh, scaring a lot of the uh, GOP rank and file in the House uh, back uh, last year, uh, and in fact earlier this year, as a matter of fact, was the George Washington University battleground poll, in which the question was asked, who do you trust to keep down government spending? Uh, Over 70% did not trust, these are of likely voters, 70% did not trust, or over 75%, did not trust Republicans to keep spending down. Now, this wasn't because... First of all, it wasn't because they were sampling or oversampling the number of people who don't like Republican fiscal policy. In fact, of those folks polled, uh, more than 50% of the respondents actually liked Republican views on taxes. They trusted them to keep taxes low. Perhaps that's a a victory for the supply side elements of the Republican Party. And they tend to like Republicans for that reason. It's also not because the Democrats have been all that good, as David mentioned, at becoming fiscal conservatives, or for that matter, advancing a fiscally disciplined view of the world. Uh, they, they haven't, and they, they probably won't, frankly. What the polls seem to be saying is that in the minds of a majority of likely voters, the Grand Old Party is no longer a serious alternative for voters who want to restrain government. It's no surprise, of course. Government has grown by 45% in just Bush's first term alone. If you adjust for the total growth in the federal budget by the length of time in office and inflation, George W. Bush is the biggest spending full-term president since Lyndon Johnson. In terms of just domestic spending... Bush looks a lot less like Reagan and more like Nixon, another big government Republican. The category of entitlement spending, the GOP doesn't look much better either. In fact, they look worse. If you look at real annual growth rate of entitlement spending, it's about 5.1%. It hasn't been that high since Nixon, Ford, or Johnson. Now, of course, this is just simply how fast government has grown. The big question is compared to what? Well, us budget wonks usually look at government expenditures as a percent of GDP and where it was in relationship to Clinton, for instance, or Reagan, or even now. If you look at what happened when Republicans took control of Congress, government was at 20.7% of GDP. That's expenditures as a a percent of GDP. When Clinton left office, federal outlays equaled 18.5% of GDP. It's over two percentage point drop. That's the lowest government spending had been, incidentally, since the 1950s. Now, of course, today we see a Republican Congress and a Republican president managing to expand government spending to 20.8% of GDP as of 2006. We've effectively seen a complete reversal by this standard of the Republican Revolution. Bush has not been alone in the spending binge, as I've mentioned before. Republican-controlled Congress has been fully complicit. In fact, in some ways, bears a lot of the blame because they are the ones that control the purse strings. Just taking a look at the 100 biggest programs that Republicans had on the chopping block in the contract with America budget. By the end of Clinton's term, they'd grown by 11%, and that's after adjusting for inflation. Under Bush so far, these programs have grown even more, by 14% in inflation-adjusted terms. I've heard a lot of talk about pork projects and earmarks. The number of earmarks and appropriations bills have skyrocketed as well. There are 958 pork projects in the appropriations bills the first year of Republican Revolution. That was down from about 1,400 in the last Democratic Congress. Today, close to 10,000. That's an over tenfold increase. And today, the growth rate of real non-defense discretionary spending by Congresses shows that Republican majorities have outspent Tip O'Neill's Congresses of the 1970s. So what we have is an administration and a Congress supposed to finally make some lasting headway in the battle against big government have instead built a party of big government. Voters are now stuck with a choice between big government, or the party of big government, rather, the Republicans, and the party of even bigger government, the Democrats. Now, when speaking to conservative audiences, of course, Republicans do wave the flag of smaller government. They say, hey, you know, we're we're winning the battle. But behind the scenes, well, they basically admit they've effectively surrendered the battle 
for smaller government. In fact, they say, yeah, we know big government's bad. They admit that much. But they say everything's going to be fine as long as the right people are in control. By right people, of course, they mean Republicans. They can rationalize keeping big government around. They think everything will be right just as they hold on to the reins. Reminded me, when I was writing the book, of a fable that Ronald Reagan liked to work into his speeches from time to time. It went something like this. Fiscal conservatives look at Washington, D.C. They see a cesspool. They get elected on the promise of changing the system. When they finally get to the nation's capital, they're soon seduced by big government, assimilated into the growth machine, and suddenly Washington, D.C. no longer feels like a cesspool. It feels a lot more like a hot tub. Part of my book is an attempt to explain how Washington, D.C., came to feel like a hot tub to so many members of the Republican Party. It doesn't endeavor to deliver an authoritative history of the GOP over the past 25 years. Instead, it looks at specific elements, specific events of the course of the past 25 years, and tries to explain really what were the turning points. How did we get to this bizarre impasse? Tells the stories and successes and defeats of the Reagan years as well as the Republican Revolution of 94 and onward. I tell the behind-the-scenes stories of how three of the biggest symbols of Republican profligacy came to be, in particular the Farm Bill of 2001, Medicare Drug Benefit, Highway Bill of 2005. And I end the book with a few chapters explaining why I think this horrible sequence of events came to pass and what it might mean for the future of the Republican Party. I'd like to just take uh, the rest of my speech and go ahead and describe some of what I think are the obvious counters to my thesis. I do anticipate some of them in the book. Let me go ahead and just lay out a few ideas here and then end with uh, just a a thumbnail sketch of what I think happened to the Republican Party. What specific political afflictions have caused them to go so far off track? The first argument that Republicans like to use, they say, you know, it's just too hard to fight against big government. It's just such a big behemoth, and that certainly is true. But they say, you know, even in cases where we had Ronald Reagan, who was such a staunch supporter and a very effective spokesperson for smaller government, even he couldn't get things under control. That's oversimplifying things a little bit. It is true that Reagan was not able to substantially redefine the boundaries of the welfare state. He was only able to terminate only about four programs of any substantial cost. And for the most part, he actually created a a new government agency, the Department of Veteran Affairs. But looking at what actually happened to overall spending, you do see some specific declines. You actually see declines in real dollar terms in non-defense discretionary spending. Government as a percent of GDP was lower when Reagan left office than when he took office. Uh, In fact, uh, the growth rate of government spending went down substantially. Uh, In fact, it was the lowest it had ever been since the 1950s at that point. So in a sense, what's so remarkable about Reagan's tenure isn't so much that he didn't accomplish much as that he accomplished anything at all in terms of actually being a defender of smaller government. And so I think uh, that that's certainly something that Republicans need to keep in mind. And unfortunately, uh, they just don't seem to want to do that because they seem probably much more interested in defending the, for the current Bush administration than they are in actually defending the ideals of smaller government. Second argument a lot of people make is that, well, you know, Republican congressional leaders don't really want to fight for small government because they still have occasional vivid nightmares of the government shutdown of 95 and 96, and as a result, they're just afraid of doing much to touch that rail of American politics. The conventional wisdom is Republicans really had nothing to show for that except a political black eye, but in retrospect... A lot of observers, or, excuse me, a lot of observers really aren't so sure. Uh, Bob Walker of Pennsylvania, former congressman and one of Newt Gingrich's closest allies, told reporter Major Garrett in Fox News in 2005, he said, quote, Did we lose an election as a result of this, meaning the government shutdown? No. Is there anything that really bad happened congressionally because of the fact we shut the government down? No. After looking at the election results of the 96 congressional election, and that election the GOP lost about a net two seats in the House, 
Linda Killian, who's a reporter for National Public Radio, certainly no redoubt of Republican apologists, concluded the election really can't be seen as a repudiation of the 94 revolution. The dozen freshmen or so who lost uh, in their specific races did so for the reason that most candidates lose. They just really weren't that good as candidates. In fact, if you look at the freshmen who were the most hardcore on cutting spending, they actually increased their vote totals. Uh, and that's especially astonishing since, one, uh, Clinton was able to gain traction politically in those specific districts. And labor unions actually spent about $35 million trying to unseat many of the GOP reformers. And so in light of these seemingly impossible odds, the budget cutters were the ones that actually ended up prevailing uh, in larger and larger portions in terms of vote share in the 96 election third defense Republicans put forward is that, you know, we've got this war on terrorism going on, and we've got to spend more money to fight that war on terrorism. Certainly true. They also say that, well, we've got entitlement spending, and that's something we really can't control, frankly, and a lot of these things are baked into the cake, and so that's on autopilot. We can't touch that. Well, that's true to a certain extent. If it were true that they couldn't do anything with entitlement spending, that would also imply they couldn't expand it either, and obviously they have with the Medicare drug benefit. But the truth of it all is, let's go ahead and just give them the benefit of the doubt. It's a big benefit of the doubt, frankly. But let's go ahead and assume that they didn't have to, or excuse me, let's go assume they have to be spending money on war on terrorism. Let's go ahead and assume they have to spend money on entitlement spending. Let's go ahead and take those off the table. You're obviously dealing with a very small portion of the budget at this point, but even if you look at those sorts of areas, the areas they claim they're doing much better on in terms of controlling spending, you find out that Republicans come off looking even worse than Lyndon Johnson. When you take those off the table, growth rates actually are higher now than they were under Lyndon Johnson. In fact, they're now only second to Nixon and Ford, and that's after adjusting for a number of years in office as well as inflation. It's also not true that all of the defense increases can be directly attributable to the war on terrorism. In fact, if you look at numbers from the Congressional Budget Office, the war on terrorism broadly defined, and by that we're including, or I should say CBO is including, the war on war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, war in Al-Qaeda. Obviously, there's lots of controversy, especially in this building, whether war in Iraq is actually considered a war on terrorism. But again, let's assume that's part of the definition that over the past five years, only 15% of overall defense spending was actually going to the war in Iraq, or more specifically, sorry, war on terrorism, broadly defined, uh, really no more than one-third of the overall increase in spending uh, on defense, or excuse me, increases in spending overall, is due at all to the war on terrorism. So, if these weren't the real reasons why Republicans became a party of big government, what was it? Was it just a conscious decision just to abandon the overall principles of Reagan and Goldwater and just the ideals of small government generally? I think there was a general philosophical change uh, in the Republican circles. Uh, And a lot of it did happen with George W. Bush and his election, specifically this idea of compassionate conservatism or big government conservatism. You've heard a lot about that. So I'm not going to recount a lot of that. I do recount most of it in my book. But there is a very substantial and I think specific philosophical change you'd seen as a result of that. I would argue, however, that change, that shift in philosophy actually occurred before George Bush even ran for office. I think you can pin a lot of the shift uh, in Republican circles in favor of big government to the years following the 96 congressional election, 97, 98 or so, back when we had the another big highway bill, a 97 budget bill that actually was a complete reversal of the contract with America. And this idea of big government servitism, I don't think in now, nowadays would have flourished without that accompanying shift in this sort of political tactic, the sort of this con- presumption that the GOP would have that instead of taking a one-two punch and saying, we're going to go ahead and go after government and then, rather, go after government spending and then work on re-election. They're going to say, we're going to go ahead and build a political machine first and then go after government spending. Problem is, 
Once safely entrenched in their political machine, the GOP could not get down to the business of finally reducing the size of the federal government. In fact, it's sort of inconsistent overall. The shift in strategic posture rather manifested itself, as we've seen, in the form of close to 10,000 earmarks that litter the appropriations bills every year. Jeff Flake of Arizona, leading critic of earmark, called them the currency of corruption. Lobbyist, excuse me, lobbyist Jack Abramoff, a man who obviously knew what he was talking about, once called the Appropriations Committee a favor factory. And yet such was the fuel of the GOP machine-building strategy. Now, couple that with a de facto surrender in the fight against big government that occurred with George W. Bush and shortly before his election, and you're sitting on a recipe for a huge increase in government spending generally in earmarks in particular. In fact, Republicans have actually become more promiscuous than Democrats in the use of earmarks. So the second stage of the political strategy, cutting government spending, now runs contrary to the Republican political aims. Today, the GOP is so closely aligned with the mechanisms of big government, it finds itself unable to shut the contraption down. They've become cogs in the federal government's growth machine. So when you see in this context, think about the political scandals that have afflicted the Republicans lately. They're not just a product of unethical congressmen. They're also a natural byproduct of the GOP leadership's conscious decision to give up the fight to limit government. Now, I think the shift in philosophy and the shift in tactics uh, probably wouldn't have been so all-encompassing in Republican circles if it were not for two specific what I call political curses, and I describe them at the end of the book. The first is the curse of incumbency and the curse of united government. Let me go ahead and address these two before I hand the podium over to uh, Robert Novak. The curse of incumbency, well, you can actually kind of create a rule to, to see how you can measure the curse of incumbency. That rule is... The longer Republicans remain the majority party in Congress, the longer their yearly spending wish lists will become. And this can be tracked in annual data, incidentally. National Taxpayers Union publishes annually a uh, list of all bills voted upon in each Congress, rather introduced and voted upon in each Congress, measures the overall impact of those bills on spending. They create what you, get, what you call a net spending agenda. Basically, they line up the spending increase bills and the spending cut bills and see which of them is bigger. As you might expect, over time, the culture of spending in Washington has chipped away at the fiscal discipline of Republicans. In the first Republican Congress, the 104th, you found in the House a, spending, a net spending cut agenda of $18.5 billion, in the Senate, $15.6 billion. Fast forward to the 108th Congress, the one that ended in 2005, spending wish list for the House has now grown to an increase of $35 billion and an increase of $34 billion in the Senate. Now, there are actually some members of Congress who were able to avoid this curse of incumbency. These are actually folks who decided to term limit themselves. Guys like Mark Sanford uh, in the House from South Carolina, who is now governor of South Carolina. Uh, Tom Coburn of Oklahoma, although he's now in the Senate, he did term limit himself uh, in the House as well. Those individuals, and, if, and NTU also did another study where you looked at what the self-term limiters did in terms of spending. They, again, were very consistent in sponsoring and voting on bills that cut spending. In fact, while the rest of their caucus were going off the deep end and increasing spending at dramatically higher rates, you actually found that these self-term limiters were ones that were able to keep, uh, in a sense, the Washington culture of spending at arm's length and were able to adhere to their principles in spite of the world going to hell in a handbasket around them. The formula is still the same, I would argue. If you look at the people who are fighting in the House for more spending, excuse me, for less spending, are the guys who really don't see Washington, D.C. as more than just a temporary assignment by their constituents. Uh, they're folks like Jeff Flake of Arizona, uh, folks like Tom Coburn in the Senate who did proclaim he's going to limit himself to two terms in the Senate. I think he's going to stick to that, but we'll have to see. Folks like Mike Pence of Indiana, Jeb Hensling of Texas, they prefer to be home in their districts than in Washington, D.C., and there seems to be something in their mindset that sort of translates into uh, opposition 
to big government. So the final element, I think, or one of the more important elements, and this is probably one of the more controversial elements in my book, is what I call the curse of united government. That seems to imply when Republicans are the beleaguered minority, or at the very least when they're a congressional majority fighting a big-spending Democratic White House, they're in their element. Big government, they're the clear enemy. But once they find themselves in control of it, both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, they're less willing to throw a punch for fear of hitting their own teammates. After the GOP won control of both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, congressional Republicans in the White House, instead of reining each other in, egged each other on. We can see this by comparing how the GOP Congress has treated the proposed non-defense budgets of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush during the years of divided government, or gridlock, if you will, under Clinton, a sort of gridlock had a tendency to lower, or I should say keep spending, under control. Republican Congress was happy to cut Clinton's domestic spending proposals. The net difference between what Clinton proposed and what Congress sent back to him was an average of minus $8 billion between 96 and 2001. That's a non-defense discretionary spending. And contrast that with the budget outcomes under President Bush, years in which, for the most part, there was an absence of gridlock. And you find that Congress gave back to Bush, and Bush refused to veto, non-defense budgets that were an average of $16 billion more than the president proposed every year. Looking at annual changes in real per capita expenditures under divided versus united government, divided government, we see a 1.5% real annual growth in real per capita expenditures. United government, we see 3.4%. It's over twice as much. So in other words, united government gives us government that grows twice as fast as it does under your divided government scenario or under gridlock. So United Government during George W. Bush has brought us the biggest expansion of government since Lyndon Johnson, which itself was a product of United Democratic Government. Now consider what divided government's gotten us over the past 20 years. It gave us the 1986 Tax Reform Act, the closest we've ever gotten to a flat tax in this country. It gave us the Defense-Based Closure and Realignment Act of 1990, which continues to save us billions of dollars in the Pentagon budget. It also gave us the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. And again, I think these are all some of the grandest achievements of the limited government conservative or libertarian movement in Washington today. So it really seems to ask the question, or at least come to a specific conclusion, and that is perhaps fiscal conservatives would be better off if Republicans did not preside over united control of both Congress and the White House. Divided government, after all, is the norm, not the exception, in politics since 1955. During the past 40 years, for instance, there were only 12 years where we had united control of the legislative and executive branches by one party at the federal level. Johnson and Carter presidencies account for about nine of those. Past three years under George W. Bush account for the rest. So what we've seen over the past few years may simply be an historical anomaly, and if it is, is that, is that a bad thing for the forces of smaller government? In light of all this, I think fiscal conservatives and libertarians really need to ask themselves an important question. Even if you don't agree that divided government would make us better off, can you really argue it'll make us worse off? And with that, I yield the podium to Robert Novak. I look forward to your questions. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Stephen. And uh, now it's my pleasure to introduce to you legendary journalist Bob Novak. Thanks, David. Uh, congr- <clears throat> congratulations, Steve. That is a... <clears throat> if you give me a glass of, oh, of water... That is an excellent book. It's a very good read. I agree with almost all of it. And uh, despite that, I recommend it to you. And uh, I think you enjoy reading it. Let me take a slightly different uh, view of the Republican tradition of being the party of, uh, of small government. 
uh, I think the uh, historical genealogy of the Republican Party goes back to uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was the big government man against Thomas Jefferson, who was the uh, founder of the Democratic Party and the small government man. And indeed, the more immediate antecedents of the Republican Party were the Whigs, who uh, under Clay, Clay was uh, Abraham Lincoln's young, uh, the young Abraham Lincoln's idol, uh, were the party of, of, uh, of public improvements, uh, which were abhorred by the Democrats. Uh, and of course, the Democrats uh, committed to slavery were uh, very much opposed to any kind of mag- magnifying of uh, of big government. Uh, that really continued more or less uh, and uh, reached uh, for many decades and reached a climax with Theodore Roosevelt, who now has uh, at least almost equaled Lincoln as the patron saint of, of Republicans. If there was ever a big government uh, Republican, it was Theodore Roosevelt. He was uh, author of the uh, state tax, uh, uh, environmental laws, antitrust laws, uh, <clears throat> a big intrusive uh, and uh, interventionist military, and of course the, uh, uh, the FBI was his creation. Uh, now I uh, I think that is a, a tremendous legacy for the uh, for the Republican Party. Uh, by the New Deal, of course, the Democrats had taken over the uh, activist role in government, but. Uh, the, Demo- the Republicans trying to oppose that didn't do very well. In 1936, the Republican candidates uh, candidate uh, uh, carried only uh, Vermont and Maine, odd states we think of now as the only Republican uh, states against Roosevelt. And the Republican Party decided they were going to go the way of the Whigs unless they did something. And uh, so what they did was they found an, a Republican industrialist who changed parties uh, about uh, four months before the National Convention, Wendell Wilkie, who had been a New Deal uh, dealer but but uh, uh, became what I would call a neoconservative uh, when he found that uh, the TVA was competing with uh, Consolidated Southern, which was his uh, big uh, public utilities holding company. My father was a public utilities executive and a strong supporter of of Wilkie, and he was my first hero uh, uh, in 1940 at the age of nine. Uh, <clears throat> now, uh, 40, 44, 48, uh, 52, and uh, uh, 56, uh, the, uh, the idea that uh, the Republican Party should really be uh, uh, very, very... Uh, Ardent in trying to reduce government uh, went by the boards in uh, in uh, election after uh, election. The nominations were not even um, much of a battle when in 1952 a, a non-Republican general uh, uh, replaced the uh, <coughs> the hero of the Republican Party, uh, Senator Robert Taft. Uh, General Eisenhower was brought in as president uh, uh, for what reason? It was to save NATO uh, from the uh, Gibraltar, uh, they called it Gibraltarism, of the Chicago Tribune and the and Robert Taft. And uh, that's when Barry Goldwater uh, made his famous, uh, put out his famous press, re- 
press release calling the Eisenhower administration the dime store New Deal. Uh, so there, there is a long tradition of, uh, of big government. I think uh, after the eight years of uh, the New Frontier and the Great Society in 1968 when uh, Richard Nixon uh, was elected, that, there was a, uh, a moment of pivoting. Because let me assure you, I knew Richard Nixon quite well. And he came into office without the faintest idea of anything he wanted to do in government. He was really a tabula rasa. Now, he had no interest in domestic policy and no interest in the question uh, that we're, we're de- debating today. And I think at that time, an extraordinarily important figure was somebody who was not a Republican at all, but was uh, a, a Democrat, a great friend of mine, my neighbor, my source, and that was Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, who had been a um, new dealer, I mean a new frontiersman under uh, President uh, uh, Kennedy, had run for office and failed in New York, and was, uh, had written some, uh, some, he was a brilliant writer, and he wrote written some th- stuff that got uh, Nixon's attention, and Nixon made him a consular in the White House in charge of urban policy with cabinet rank. Can you imagine that? And, uh, uh, the the moment of truth came when uh, Pat Moynihan told me that he was going to do his best in two years. He was only going to spend two years and then go back to Harvard where he had tenure uh, to convince President Nixon that uh, when you, as in the British system, uh, Mr. Moynihan said, when you take over reins of government from another party, you do not change the policy. You do not uh, get rid of the poverty program. You do not get rid of all the great society programs that LBJ has put in, and certainly Nixon didn't. And I think that uh, that Moynihan uh, was responsible for Dick Nixon being a big government uh, Republican because he certainly had no views prior to that time. Uh, Mr. Moynihan, uh, Dr. Moynihan, had, who had became a Democratic senator, we all know, and served with great distinction, had said many times uh, to me, and I think he might have said it in public a few times, that the great battle in America between the parties over whether government was going to play a controlling interest in our lives was settled, was settled in the Nixon administration. And uh, I, I thought uh, at times... Uh, uh, optimistic that uh, Pat was wrong, but perhaps uh, perhaps he was correct. Uh, one of the uh, one of the few uh, uh, complaints I have about Steve's book is I I I th- I think he gives a good review to David Stockman. Mr. Stockman was a nasty little traitor in the uh, in the uh, Reagan administration who uh, decided. Uh, uh, that uh, for whatever reasons, I won't give his motives, that he uh, was going to give Bill Greider, a left-wing, uh, excellent journalist, but a left-wing journalist, uh, then with the Washington Post, uh, the story of what a fraud the whole Reagan program was. And um, uh, <clears throat> he was meeting um, uh, with uh, Mr. Greider on, for breakfast at the Hay Adams on uh, every other Saturday morning. On the odd Saturdays or the even Saturdays, as it were, he was meeting with me and giving a different story. But that uh, that's the 
duplicity in Washington is, is not a very interesting story, so we, we won't dwell on, on that. Uh, uh, Stockman, very early in the, in, the camp, in the election, told me that uh, they were really serious about cutting down the size, the size of government. And uh, he, he, uh, he informed me that uh, they were going to go after corporate welfare. Corporate welfare uh, has long antecedents among conservatives. They love it. They, they, you go to talk to those guys, they love corporate welfare. You can talk on one hand in the amount of people, even among the so-called uh, conservatives who are against it. And, uh, and I was stunned when, when Stockman told me this, and I was foolish enough. I mean, how, how, how naive could I be? I was, uh, I, was not, I was not young even in 1981. <laughs> and I wrote a column about it. Well, I would, I would, when I was still on good terms with Stockman, I would frequently say, Dave, whatever happened to that? He said, we're working on that. It's a tough deal. It was tough because they never did anything about it. So although Steve correctly says that the, uh, uh, there was a, a better record on spending with Ronald Reagan, certainly than there is on, under George W. Bush, which I don't think is a terribly high commendation, uh, they, never, they never did much on, uh, on, on corporate welfare. There was something else that was going on, and that was that uh, the most dramatic uh, thing that was done in the Reagan administration was the tax cut. Uh, it was uh, the old Camp Roth plan, which became uh, uh, the uh, Conable Hance plan in, in the House of Representatives. And it was at that time that Jack Kemp, who was a, a really a, a dynamic figure on the right wing of the Republican Party, said that uh, we do not worship at the, at, the, uh, at the altar of a balanced budget. Now, whether he believed that or not, I don't know, but that was the strategy to try to get people not to worry about the budget balancing when, when they were cutting taxes. Goodness knows I was for taxes, cutting taxes then. I'm for cutting them now. It's the only thing the Republican Party can do at all effectively. It's the only thing to commend this administration. And I also, as all, I've also have often said that I believe that God put the Republican Party on earth to cut taxes, and if they don't do that, they have no reason for being uh, whatsoever. And cer- certainly, they don't. Uh, they don't. They have never been interested particularly in cutting spending. But I think the unintended consequence of uh, Kemp's line and the whole supply side line was to make it easier to, uh, to increase spending. Finally, we come to the uh, to the Gingrich revolution, uh, such as it was, and I I really believe that Newt Gingrich uh, had very little interest. In governing, I think he he has a great interest in politics. He's running for president. If you're interested, I'm sure he he, uh, he he's taking on supporters at this point. But uh, uh, I don't think Newt ever was really uh, uh, very interested in, in in cutting government. I think he lost interest in the speakership about three months into the job because it's a it's a it's a lot of drudgery and not much uh, not much fun. And uh, certainly. Uh, I don't believe that the, uh, uh, the, the Republicans who took over Congress, even in their first two years, uh, ever uh, uh, were effective. I, uh, I had signed a book contract uh, to write a book about the, uh, 
the Republican Congress elected in 1994, comparing it with the 80, famous 80th Congress elected in 1946, which was uh, uh, not a do-nothing Congress, as Truman said, but it was a, a very effective Congress. They did an awful lot of things, cut taxes, uh, Taft-Hartley Labor Act, and many other things. Uh, and uh, I... Uh, I eventually uh, said I couldn't write this book because I didn't write. A, I didn't want to write the at that time the book that Steve wrote, which was knocking the hell out of him because they didn't accomplish anything. I said uh, I I made a kind of a not a very clever metaphor, but I said it, that I considered the uh, the established uh, uh, position of the Democrats on the Hill after. 40 years of uninterrupted control in the House of Representatives to be like an executive washroom uh, with a lot of privileges for the people who go into it. And the Republicans had a, had a choice, I said. They could either uh, close down the executive uh, washroom or change the locks. And they changed the locks on it. That's what they did. And then, subsequently, they increased it. What you, what you really have now uh, is... Uh, what uh, Tom Colburn calls an addiction to uh, earmarks, and I believe it is, but they really believe that to uh, to, to prosper uh, uh, in in Washington and on the Hill, you must um, you must bring back pork or bacon or whatever um, uh, kind of uh, 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 meat product you want to refer to. Uh, you must bring it back to your district. And if you don't, you're not doing your job. Um, it's um, it's an embarrassment because there are so few of of, of them that uh, don't do it. One of them, of course, we've mentioned before, is Congressman Flake from uh, from Arizona, and uh, he puts out these uh, these ear- he so you can select a hundred earmarks on on these appropriations bills. He picks about seven or eight. Has roll calls on about four, and he gets almost no votes. There's no interest whatsoever, and he takes only the most egregious ones. I, I would I'd love to see one of them pass, but none of them pass. So there's ab- absolutely uh, uh, no interest whatsoever. Uh, there's one other factor that, that, besides the desire to bring home the bacon, that that uh, militates uh, against the Republicans being anything but the party of big government, and that's something that. Um, that Steve really doesn't mention a great deal in the book, and I hate I hate book reviewers and critics who criticize you for not writing the book you didn't write, and and uh, I don't think it really was had a place in this book, so I'm not being critical at all. But that is the the role of the lobbies. Uh, 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 Milton Friedman uh, has said that there is a symbiotic relationship between uh, members of Congress and lobbyists. Um, uh, he he says that. It, it's most effective in preventing any kind of tax reform because the lobbyists uh, live on tax complexity, and the lobbyists are the people who these people turn to in um, the members of Congress turn to in getting funds for re-election. Uh, people ask me sometimes after 50 years, what's the biggest change in Washington? And that is, it's a bigger, bigger money town, and the part of the money town is the cost of running campaigns in television and the use of these huge law labor firms for raising the money. For example, Aiken Gump, when I uh, did not exist in Washington when I came in uh, 1957, 
at the beginning of the second uh, Eisenhower term to, wor- to work here. In fact, it would not be on the scene for another 15 years when, by chance, Bob uh, Strauss, one of the partners of Aiken Gump, was elected treasurer of the Democratic National Committee and decided he wanted something else to do when he came to Washington, and he opened up an office with a secretary, a paralegal, another lawyer, and himself. Now there's over 300 people, and they have their own building on DuPont Circle. But these huge, massive law firms with money flowing all over the place are, uh, uh, are they have needs, they have desires, and their desires on tax policy and on spending are met. They are, they are tremendously powerful, and it's very difficult uh, to, to get by them. Um, I was at a, uh, <clears throat> a conservative forum uh, recently, uh, when I'm the most liberal guy there, I know it's a conservative form. <laughs> um, but um, everybody agreed that if anybody deserved to lose control of Congress, it was the Republican Party in the year 2006. The disagreement was, would it be a good thing or a bad thing for the cause? The cause being of all the people there, and I agreed with them, that we are a shining city on a hill internationally, not because we're pure, not because we're Democrats, because we have less government, we have not strangled ourselves as the Europeans and even the Japanese have done. And to keep this kind of momentum, uh, what uh, uh, what kind of a... Uh, uh, <coughs> um, what would happen uh, to that momentum if we had a Democratic House or a Democratic House and Senate? Um, I think the figures are very interesting that Steve has showing that there, when you have divided government, you have less spending, and and you and you and you might, but uh, this is not this is not your your father's Democratic Party. It's not even uh, uh, your brother's your older brother's Democratic Party. It's a different kind of Democratic Party, uh, and uh, uh, I don't know what the consequences would be. The thing that worries the um, the administration the most is subpoena power. They're worried about uh, um, <clears throat> about Charlie Rangel and uh, um, uh, John Conyers and Henry Waxman um, and uh, 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 Barney Frank, uh, all of whom would be uh, committee chairman, using the subpoena powers. Uh, that's the kind of uh, part of the t- t- turnover that appeals to me. I think I think I really look forward to that. <laughs> but the uh, the thing that's worrisome is uh, is uh, does does the uh, do we do we really go wild on domestic spending on redistribution of income on uh, counter uh, uh, on poor tax policy and uh, and a lot of Republicans say well it's going to be so bad. President will veto it all. Get veto, uh, veto sustained. That uh, that they'll have enough of a Democratic House or a Democratic Congress and go back in 2008. But I remember very well, my friends, that all my Democratic sources said after 1994, it's not a problem. But two years of Newt Gingrich, they'll be ready for us again in uh, 1996 uh, with uh, with. Clinton on the ticket it didn't happen that way. So um, 
I would say I would say right now that uh, I have never had much faith in any politicians. I don't think uh, you should have too much faith in the, in the Republican Party, but um, in a spirit of optimism, there may be worse things. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I have an idea if the Democrats do take control, they may demonstrate to the Republicans what oversight hearings are for. Um, <coughs> there certainly are Republicans who think that the Republicans failed to use oversight committees the way they could have when they took power. But anyway, let's open this up for some questions now. Um, we will bring a microphone around to you so that everybody can hear your question. Uh, please wait to be called on and wait for the microphone to get there. Any questions? Yes, sir. If you could uh, foresee whether Senator McCain, who's been a big campaigner against earmarks um, as a presidential candidate or as a president, uh, would govern more like Nixon or would act more like Reagan or Coburn? Well, I, I share Bob's skepticism about putting faith in, in any political party or, or candidate. And in fact, in some ways, the message of my book and some friends who've read it said when read the ending. It just makes you want to put your head in an oven. The cynical nature is that perhaps that this is just inevitable. The Republican Party is always going to veer toward big government, and it just so happens that the only outer boundary are the Democrats who want even more government. So in some respects, I, I mean, despite the fact that I like the fact that, that uh, uh, McCain is fighting against earmarks, Bob's absolutely right. I mean, on the House floor, when Flake does it, they don't get any votes. Uh, in, the, in the Senate, they, they don't get very much support either, although it's easier to gum up the works in the Senate because of the Senate rules and all. Uh, but he'd probably have a lot less power to do anything uh, in the White House or as opposed to the Senate. So perhaps the Senate might actually end up be better, being better for him in terms of actually fighting these sorts of things. But, uh, but if you look at the voting record, I mean, he, uh, on, on a lot of other pork, I mean, he'll come out and he'll make good speeches, and a lot of the times he just doesn't do all the things that he should be doing to get rid of things. I and mean, he does vote for some silly things as well. And so like other Republicans, uh, you know, he's not that willing to really go to the mat for these sorts of things, which is why, as I say, if it's inevitable for reasons such as the lobbying community being so closely tied to whoever's in the majority or things of that sort, it's inevitable a Republican Party is going to come apart at the seams over ideas like uh, limited government that perhaps it's the case that divided government really is the only thing you can put your faith in. If you can't put your faith in a party, you can at least put your faith in some kind of gridlock and a sort of a check and balance kind of thing. And I realize that's a cynical way of saying it, but you know, uh, in terms of the corporate welfare aspect, which I do talk about in the book as well, you know, Republicans have not been able to cut down on corporate welfare. The only time they have been able to do it, or at least think about doing it and, and sort of militate in that direction, is when they're going after the corporate welfare programs that were proposed by Democrats. And so as long as it's not their program, they're, they're fine going after it. And so if you had the other guy in charge and it became the other guy's programs, perhaps there's a point where, where that might work. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm skeptical that, that McCain would be able to do much, not just currently, but also if, if he were in the White House. And I also don't know if, if that's something that would translate into his presidential campaign. I mean, I know it's a populist idea, but you know, he might go do the same thing Republicans have been doing, which is go on the national security bandwagon kick and try to... You know, try to pigeonhole things that way. So that's just my off-the-top-of-the-head thoughts. Do you have any ideas? I, I, I tend to agree with you on, on McCain. Uh, if you really want somebody in the White House who would be tough on earmarks, uh, elect Tom Coburn as president. Uh, now, I, uh, I wrote the, uh, the preface to his, uh, or the foreword, I should say, to his, uh, his memoir of uh, 
that was printed right after he left the House of Representatives under self-imposed uh, term limits, and I suggested in the uh, uh, in the last paragraph that he would be an excellent candidate for president, and I uh, received no uh, positive response on that from anybody, so I guess I was right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, in the back. About Tom Coburn, he'd be a great president and presidential candidate. I'd like to uh, comment on your uh, Nixon reminiscence. In September of 1972, Pat Buchanan, Chuck Colson, and Harry Dent persuaded Nixon to name me uh, to run the war on poverty with a view toward closing it down. Uh, when I took the job, I was promised that Nixon would veto even a continuing resolution, if necessary, to close it down. His motives were not ideological. They were the result of the fact that I had given him evidence that uh, long before Watergate became a factor, uh, OEO grantees were working for his impeachment. That got his attention. Uh, as uh, 1973 wore on, uh, Nixon receded from any active role of governance, and a fellow named Paul O'Neill, uh, in effect, became Chancellor of the Exchequer long before uh, Bush appointed him to that role and made decisions. And he was an LBJ Democrat when he came into the Nixon administration, and he wanted to save the Great Society. So it was he who persuaded Nixon to recede from his promise to close down the Great Society. That having been said, Steve Bull once told me that Nixon agreed with me completely and that he thought I was the only appointment he had made uh, of an individual who was doing what he promised to do. That's, that's very interesting, Howard. Uh, that was Howard Phillips, in case you didn't uh, recognize him. Um, the, uh, so that was typical, I think, of President Nixon. He, uh, he, uh, he was happy to uh, theorize politically on something, but he wouldn't put it into... Uh, into action. Of course, the first OEO director was not Howard Phillips. It was who? Sergeant Shriver. On Rumsfeld. And um, <laughs> under, uh, under him. And his, his chief of staff was Dick Cheney. And their, uh, and their uh, senior bureaucrat was Paul O'Neill. So um, these fellows never go away. They never fade away, do they? They just, they just, uh, they just. Cheney say told that. me I, uh, that he was. He I, Howard, you'd be interested. I, uh, I finished um, my memoirs uh, of 50 years in Washington, and I'm uh, I'm very very hard on your President Nixon, and uh, I'm hard on everybody, but mo- but most of them are dead, so it's okay. Uh, but uh, I uh, the publisher is trying to cut it down to size now, but I hope uh, it'll be out next year. Thanks. Yes, right here. Uh, if you say that the choice is between a party of big government and a party of even bigger government, what do you expect voters who support small government to do? Is there going to be another Ross Perot or something like that? Well, I mean, sometimes there is. Uh, I, I think that's, again, another historic anomaly that you had a third party like that as, as prominent as it was, or a third party candidate, you know, ballot access laws being what they are, and now campaign finance reform, which is practically an incumbent protection racket, probably militates against a lot of that sort of thing. Uh, I do tell a story in my book about what happened in 98 
shortly after the 97 budget reform, or more specifically the 97 budget bill, which is a complete reversal of the contract with America budget, uh, there was a bloated highway bill that was even larger than what Reagan had, had uh, smaller than the one we had in 2005, incidentally, but much bigger than what we had when Reagan vetoed it. Uh, and then what happened in terms of turnout? among self-proclaimed fiscal conservatives in the polls and such, and in the exit polling. You found there was about a 6% drop in voter turnout between 94 and 98. Uh, and I chose 94 and 98 simply because they were off-year elections. Uh, 98, of course, was the one where you saw this drop dr- most dramatically uh, among self-proclaimed fiscal conservatives. And I think that that's the point, is that if you're given a choice between pulling the lever for a Republican who's going to spend like a Democrat or pulling the lever for a Democrat and you're a partisan Republican, but yet you still want to fight for, for smaller government, uh, you're not going to be really all that, much, all that compelled to take your time, stand in line at the polling station, and vote for someone who's, who's obviously not fighting for your specific interests and issues. Now, I think the national security issue has been able to hold a lot of Republicans together, but I think you're starting to see fissures crack in that way. Uh, if you look at, as I said, turnouts uh, of 98, you, that actually did uh, contribute to some Republicans losing uh, in the House. And as a result, you know, I think they're kind of flirting with that sort of historical problem that turnout uh, could could be lower as a result of alienating a, a certain part of your base but but bob's I'm, I'm i'm just a mere economist bob's someone who looks at these numbers on a daily basis so perhaps he agrees perhaps he doesn't i don't know i uh i think uh i think perot had hit a nerve on uh on what he was saying uh, you know he was the only since they've been taking polls he was the only independent candidate who at one time um um uh, at one time led both the Republican and Democratic candidates in the polls. That was in the uh, early in, uh, in uh, 1990, uh, <clears throat> 1992. Uh, but uh, uh, I think when he, when he uh, got out of the, out of the race because uh, uh, President Bush uh, was going to uh, ruin his, his daughter's wedding, Remember that? Uh, I, now I don't know how you you do that in Texas. I guess you close the bar or something if you <laughs> if, if you if, if you want to do that. But anyway, that that was a uh, a suicidal thrust by him, and he he was never the same. I always have thought a, a an emotionally stable Ross Perot might have actually won in '92 because there was a uh, tremendous dissatisfaction with both parties. I don't see anybody. Um, um, the Mayor, Mayor Bloomberg of New York is thinking of running as an independent, but uh, I don't think he could. Um, who knows, though? Be very, I hope he runs. I think it would be very interesting uh, because he, uh, he has plenty of money and um, doesn't have to. And unlike Ross, will spend it on the, uh, on the campaign. Okay, right down here. Wait for the microphone. First of all, I'd like to thank you all for your courage in uh, the positions that you voiced here today. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself also. I'm Gail Parker. I'm the independent on the ballot in Virginia for U.S. Senate, along with seven other candidates running for U.S. Congress. Uh, I've been, I'm a conservative. We advocate for rail. And uh, I have been promising my voters in Virginia that the first thing that I will do is to introduce a a legislation to balance the budget. I'd like to know if you've done any um, research to uh, forecast 
the outcome of a vote on legislation to balance the federal budget? We haven't done any uh, research to forecast an outcome on a specific vote on a piece of legislation. We, at the Cato Institute, we focus on actual fiscal outcomes and what would have to happen to balance the budget and, and things of that sort. Um, one thing I would like to point out, though, uh, and, and I appreciate your, your kind comments uh, about my courage, but I think uh, in terms of the balanced budget, the, the idea, I think Republicans have gotten in some ways too caught up in the idea of a balanced budget. There's nothing wrong with a balanced budget. In fact, it's actually a very good thing. One of the problems, however, is that it seems to pigeonhole Republicans to a point where they're, they, they can't make a good argument on behalf of limited government. They basically will just say, oh, well, we need to cut spending to, to balance the budget. And that's, again, some, that's the way we should be doing it. But, but when you have the government consuming 20% of GDP and spending, as you currently do, to say we need to balance the budget implies that we're willing to give a pass to the full 20% of spending. I think a better way would be if you had a balanced budget requirement that did two things. One, forced you uh, to have a supermajority requirement for an increase in taxes to balance the budget, because right now the problem isn't a matter of too little tax revenue, it's, it's too much spending. And the second might be looking at long-term fiscal imbalances, specifically things like Medicare, drug benefits, Social Security, et cetera. Because right now we've got a point in the government accounting where we're just looking at year-in-year cash flows. We're not looking at long-term demographic shifts. And one of our senior fellows here, Jagadish Gokhale here at the Cato Institute, has done a substantial amount of work on this. And you'd probably be much more uh, better advised, I guess, if you did a balanced budget amendment where you're actually balancing the budget over the long term as opposed to not just year by year. Uh, But of course, nothing like that would ever get passed. And so while I haven't done a specific analysis in terms of actual what votes would accrue uh, to to a proposal like that, it's my general impression that if it's a good idea, it probably will fail. So therefore, I would say it's probably not very likely, unfortunately. I'll give you a political prediction. The voters want it. The politicians don't. And there's a very good chance that if you introduced a balanced budget constitutional amendment, it will get 66 votes in the Senate, but it will never get 67 votes. The senators will stand in the back of the room discussing who gets to vote no because they don't want it to happen, but they want the voters to see as many of them saying yes as possible. Uh, These days with uh, uh, partisanship, maybe it doesn't even get that far. Yes, right here. Whoever can get there fastest. Um, my, my question is kind of inspired as a counterpoint to David's comments um, there in that um, isn't it true that earmarks are Congress, congressional offices don't sit around saying let's put an earmark in an appropriations and let's come up with a list ourselves of earmarks. They're responded by lobbyists who represent constituents who come up and ask for an earmark or ask for a spending program. So isn't the the, the problem um, not the politicians, but the problem is a large segment of the American people, while in abstract they want um, balanced budget and limited government, in reality they want everyone else everyone else's program to be cut but they want their earmark, they want their spending program, and until people are willing to say, okay, you could, I'll, I'll take my earmark, you can cut my earmark if you're going to cut everybody else's, we won't, we'll, we'll never have limited government. Let me, let me uh, really disagree with the premise that they, being the people, really want all this uh, spending. I think it's uh, it's special interest groups. Special interest groups are not necessarily 
uh, big corporations or big labor, although it includes them, but uh, uh, you know, nice charities, people trying to do the right thing, churches, uh, but people who want something from the government. Uh, there's two kinds of people uh, uh, in, in, in America, it always has been, those who uh, would like the government to stay away from them as far away as possible, and those who, who feel that they need help, either personally or their cause, from from the uh, from the government. And Steve, the problem with these guys coming going back every weekend, uh, as they do now, all of them go back every weekend. One of Joe Lieberman's problems is he was one of the few who didn't go back every weekend. But they, when they go back every weekend, who do they see? Do they see uh, the guy who says, gee, I'd like the government to get off my back uh, if I could just pay a little fewer taxes? They, they see people who want something. They want a swimming pool. They want a, a, uh, a, a th- an old movie theater turned into an arts palace. They want something from this cornucopia, this never-flowing flow of, uh, of revenue. So uh, you have to the part I agree with the question is that the members of Congress have to say, no, I don't think that's the voice of the people. I think it's the voice of special interest. But the congressmen have to say no, and they and they don't say no. That is why, if I'll just get in a plug, that's why I've always been a strong advocate of term limits. I do believe the term-limited members of Congress are able to say no. Uh, they they are not worried about the next the next election. And the 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 funny I argument against term limits is that the quality of the of the members of Congress would go down if you had term limits. Boy, uh, I think that's one of the funniest things I've heard. So. <laughs> Stephen, this is a good time for a concluding comment. Sure, certainly. I, actually, I do agree with, uh, with Bob's point about term limits. I think it's absolutely right. We have sort of a, a self-selection problem, the kind of people who come into politics, the kind of people who want to be politicians. And as a result, they like the, the affection and the attention uh, uh, showered on them by by lobbyists and such, and and as a result, you, you end up getting into the sort of this echo chamber of of bad thinking in terms of the, the role of government. Uh, in that respect, I do think term limits would be a very a very important change uh, in the overall structure of how Congress operates, which is why I talk about it and and speak very highly of it in my book. Uh, and as I said, divided government is certainly something that that's a good thing in terms of actual structural changes. Something that's able to break a logjam like that in terms of earmarks. Uh, the problem is. It requires taking the decision-making power out of the hands of Congress, like a BRAC commission for something, for government waste or something. Well, that's a good idea. It probably is a rather somber realization that Congress themselves can't actually do this on their own. Uh, And so I think institutional changes, though, are probably really where we're going to see most of the effectiveness takes a while for those to happen. Term limits is just one of those things. Uh, So until then, I'm uh, looking forward to gridlock as opposed to united government. Thank you very much, Robert Novak. Thank you, Stephen Slavinsky. The book is... The book is Buck Wild, How Republicans Broke the Bank and Became the Party of Big Government, available everywhere and at Cato.org. Thank you all for coming, and we have lunch upstairs.